1: In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is First to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today.
0: I ask the Prime Minister, How good is Australia? Please explain. I'm
1: here to make a
0: public
1: statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr
2: I Courtin. am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, well, fair shack of the sauce bottle, mate.
1: G'day, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage, which extrudes weekly from the Australian National University. And I'm joined by two of its finest, and neither of whom is any stranger to Democracy Sausage listeners, I talk of Dr Maria Tafaga who's a political scientist uh, at the School of Politics and International Relations with which I'm also associated. Hi there Maria.
0: Hello, and you know what? I've never thought of myself as an extrusion but perhaps this is a promotion. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's
1: it's an un, it's an unpleasant a deliberately unpleasant mental image but I was talking about the podcast rather than your good self. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and also uh, with us, uh, again, no stranger to DS listeners, is Professor Frank Pongiorno from ANU School of History, author, of course, of the acclaimed Dreamers and Schemers, a political history of Australia, and another history of the 1980s among among many outpourings. G'day, Frank. Hi, Mark. How are you
2: going? And hi, Maria. Hello. Yes. Hello, listeners. <laughs> going really well. Yeah. But,
1: you know, what what sort of prompted the discussion we're going to have today, I suppose, has been a series of developments over the last week in politics, which I think are quite instructive, and we've had one or two chats about this, Frank, uh, in the in the in the corridors. And I speak of particularly the government's decision to uh, to tweak, if I can put it like that, the rules around superannuation. That is to change, and I'll, I'll just you know, very quickly summarise what that change is. So after talking about how uh, tax concessions for superannuation cost the budget in terms of revenue foregone which is you know what it's that's what a tax expenditure is in, in terms of the way treasury looks at it uh, that concession concessional treatment of superannuation costs the budget about 52 billion dollars a year so it's a significant, Drain on what otherwise would be revenue. And what the government's proposed to do, or is doing, and will legislate if we can get the, uh, the numbers and get it through the, the parliament, uh, is a change so that superannuation accounts uh, over the value of $3 million will no longer have their earnings taxed at 15 cents in the dollar but will have their earnings taxed at 30 cents in the dollar which is still concessional still lower than the marginal income tax rates that that income would otherwise attract uh, but nonetheless is higher right now this will save a relatively minor amount of money in the budget in the in the early stages uh, but gradually if it's not indexed by future governments uh, could amount to a uh, a more significant and you know could rope in more a more significant uh, number of people. At the moment, it will apply to the top half a percentage point of superannuation holders, that is around eighty thousand people. Uh, now the accounts that have three million dollars or more in them, the average of which is about six million dollars or five point eight million dollars. Um, these obviously are people who are doing pretty well. And if they're just saving for retirement, then, you know, I'll go he, frankly. I mean, uh, and and there are some accounts that have more than $100 million, which is supposedly in there for uh, their retirement. One even has more than half a billion dollars that is supposedly in someone's account for retirement. Now, it's an important point, this, because... Um, The whole point about concessional tax rates for superannuation, it's a public policy instrument to encourage people to save for their retirement. That's why the tax is foregone in the way that it is, to encourage people to save for their retirement so there won't be a drain or as big a drain on the age pension and they will have a more comfortable post-working life um, life. Um, Clearly, people are using this for much greater uh, savings as an investment vehicle uh, and uh, and to pass on to their kids or to do whatever they will with it, but it's not for retirement, quite clearly. And so that's the the modest change. The government has just clipped the very top of the superannuation pile, and yet we've seen the opposition immediately come out opposed to it, and we've seen a lot of you know hyperbole and frothing in the in the press about a class war, and we've seen. You know uh, complaints that uh, labour is coming after your money, that it is your money, and all this sort of stuff. Um, Frank, what does this tell us really about where we are with reform? I mean, it's a Mm. very—you would have thought this is the kind of thing that that a liberal party of the old might have actually supported, because it's for self-reliance. You know, it's for small government, it's for fiscal rectitude, for rebalancing the budget where possible, these sorts of things. Here's a very modest change, and 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 and, as Sean Kelly wrote on Monday, it's sort of treated like it's this dramatic change.
2: Yeah, I think it it has slightly greater effects, doesn't it, on people once they have retired, I think. I think the increase is greater, but you're right. I mean, it's it's minor. Um it at the moment at least affects relatively small numbers of people. What's it tell us? Well, it tells us how hard reform is in this country when it affects anyone adversely, because, uh, there's a megaphone out there, and let's face it, we know what the megaphone is. It's conservative press, particularly Murdoch press, uh, which will amplify their complaints and, and get up a kind of a, you know, the makings almost of a campaign against what the government's trying to do. Um, look, there's already public opinion polling that suggests that um, this uh, change, this modest change, has. Uh, broad support. I think it's up around two thirds.
1: Yeah, that's that was news poll, and I think there's yeah. another poll out this morning as we record this mm. uh, that that accords with that as well. So essentially, people have people have accepted the logic of what the government's proposed. That's quite significant, given yeah. all the all the frothing and hyperbole we've seen. It, it is, I think,
2: and and you know, we, we it wasn't well sold by the government. It has to be said. I mean, the, the communication around this. I think, by the government was poor. Um, They didn't seem to have their story straight, their lines straight.
1: Um, Well, let's just stop there for a moment because that's that's interesting. I was talking with someone from the government this morning about this before we uh, came to this recording, and we were discussing that very thing, that very aspect, you know, could this have been sold better? It struck me that um, the government was keen to establish that there was a problem and then present the solution, which is a reasonable way of going in when you're doing reform. Uh, I think back to the RSPT, the Resource Super Profits Tax, back in about 2010, when the government proposed this quite dramatic solution to the sort of runaway profits of these uh, these mining companies that weren't being repatriated. And it struck me at the time, being someone covering politics and everything else, that this was a dramatic solution presented to a problem people didn't realize they had you know that there wasn't enough work spade work if you'll excuse the pun given this was about mining um done beforehand to uh, you know to kind of uh, bring people into the frame that something needed to change that it needed to be a fix the government on this occasion rolling back to the super question the government spent a couple of weeks it was a pretty short period of time but spent a couple of weeks saying Superannuation tax concessions cost us this fifty-two billion dollars. It's you know it's a big drain on the budget. It's unsustainable. Blah blah blah, and then and then came in with what was a very modest change. So in that sense, you know, that wasn't bad. I think that for me, the problem with what the government did in terms of or the thing they could have done better was that it immediately got criticised as a broken promise. Right, but the government has. Engineered into this change that it will be legislated this term, but will not come into operation until the first of July, twenty twenty-five, which will be after the next election. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't so much a broken promise from the last election, as a new promise for the next election, and that's what the government I think could have been more forthright about, rather than kind of being a bit bit iffy and saying, "Oh well, yeah, okay, look, we said we wouldn't do it, but we're not changing it." You know, they could have they could have been more aggressive and saying it's not a broken promise.
2: They they could have. I mean, it sort of sits in between, doesn't it? It's a bit like the stage three tax cuts in a way. I mean, it, it would be difficult, not impossible, but difficult for a, a new government. You know, at the, after the next election to um, uh, backtrack. I mean, you could you could do it. Governments do do backtrack on on policies, but once it's actually legislated, once it's in place, um, it, it would be harder to to remove. I mean, well, Dutton's
1: no, but. No, let's let's be clear on this. Dutton yeah. and, and the opposition has prom- immediately pledged to repeal it if elected. So the next election, unless the opposition mm. changes its position, voters will be able to decide whether they back it or they don't. I mean, no one was uh, explicitly using Chris Bowen's legendary words from the 2019 campaign, mm. but essentially Labor's message was if you don't like it, don't vote for it.
2: They have set that up, but you know, in our system, that's subject to, uh, you know, getting it through the Senate, uh, and and you know, it's also just subject to the passage of what over two years of time, and and you know, mm. you could easily imagine the coalition uh, eventually deciding it's not such a good idea to go after it, particularly ahead of the election. Um, so, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I agree with you broadly, Mark. I don't think um, that the, the claim, or the accusation, this was a broken promise should hold terribly much sway, but for a rather different reason. This is how you do government, I'm afraid. I mean, Mm. um, yes, governments have been brazen in the past in in basically saying one thing and doing something completely different afterwards. It undermines trust. 2014 budget was a classic case of this. It was a flamboyant case of of this, but that's not what we're dealing with here. We're We're dealing with uh, a, a budget that that you know is falling into ever greater deficit. Um, we're, we're dealing with uh, an economic situation that isn't even what it was, you know, seven or eight months ago. Um, governments have to govern, and they 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 actually have to respond to the circumstances that they're faced with, not you know some sort of vague uh, you know kind of commitment or non-commitment uh, made twelve or eighteen months before. So for me, it's about. The, the the iterative negotiated nature of policymaking in government, mm. which good governments do. I mean, this idea that you commit in advance to something and you do it in government and if you didn't commit, you got no right to do it. I mean, it's just absurd. You, you can't govern in that way.
0: Well, I mean, this is reflective of the, um, the corner that politicians have gleefully backed themselves into, right, in their effort to sort of... Um, like respond to new technology, right, and the way that, um, you know, social media and 24-hour news cycles really favoured a sort of staccato style of conversing. And conversing, I think, is a really uh, generous sort of term. Like, So if we kind of look at how national debates have sort of actually been structured over the last 15 years, it's all been about um, stopping an actual conversation from really Getting started or or going anywhere, which means that you know parties have responded defensively and and are almost thinking like, well, if we say this, then the then my opponent will say that, and so therefore they only say X or they make they make a promise or they use like this hyperbolic or overly strong um, language, which when they get into government they find quite kind of constraining, and I think what is kind of interesting is that you know this sort of Structural paradigm has been in place for a long time now and it's breaking down because nothing can get done. Mm. As I've sort of said so many times, like, you know, our society is facing real problems and this is actually percolating into the minds of citizens and, uh, you know, um, and I'd like your thoughts on this in a second, Frank, because it reminds me of the, the 1980s. I mean, we went through the entire 70s and another recession in the early 1980s before people sort of thought, well, perhaps reform might be better than the crap we're dealing with now. And the other sort of thing that I kind of want to make a point is that we've got all these different actors in the parliament, right? Like for for a few election cycles now, this idea of the lower house not being simply the chamber of the government and the opposition duking it out in pointless rhetoric, right? Like that lower chamber has, through through the minority parliament and now through the crossbench, um, started to make the idea of needing to build coalitions, not just in the Senate, but in other parts of the polity, like more of a reality. And this actually is creating conversational sort of space, but governments are sort of struggling to work out quite how to do this and the opposition is... Um, well, you know, to be blunt, like, they don't really know what they, what direction they want to go in. They've just lost an election. They're searching for relevance. So they're kind of doing what oppositions kind of do, which is to scream, to scream, to get attention. And, I mean, who, who is actually going to remember anything they say now um, in three years' time? And, you know, probabilistically, it'd be an uphill battle for them to win Anyway, so all of this sort of stuff is kind of there, and it relates to what you said, Frank. Like governments actually have to govern, but also societies also have to come to the table and say and 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 renew that social license for governments to actually kind of get on with it. And I I do wonder if the conversation around this super stuff, like the media reaction, was interesting. Like you had the usual suspects crying blue murder. You had that. Um, Rather like that, that really sarcastic piece on I think it was today.
1: Oh, that was funny where they went to
0: Double Bay. I mean, like, I was actually surprised to see that on
1: today. That's a program, right?
0: Yes, yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's so mean. Um, um, you know, where I I don't know the journalist's name, but she she went to Double Bay and was it was kind of like an episode of Philomena Kunk, like, she was just (laughs) you know, openly mocking people who thought she was being serious and um. And, you know, you've got the sort of more worthy press sort of saying like, oh, well, you know, time for reform and time for change. And these news poll reports kind of show that, that people have kind of woken up to the reality that we can't do everything like we used to. There isn't money falling from the sky. Um, that, you know, many of the sort of policy concessions given away during that once in a century mining boom. Are not sustainable. They're, it it is actually about trade offs, mm. right? That's kind of the point. This is tax concession, tax money foregone. So foregone for what? You know, foregone for services that we might actually really need.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, and and the timing of it, I think, is fortuitous in a way because it gives us a wonderful insight into how governments have been operating. So they screwed over the poor through robo debt to 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 um, claw back money for you know, budget repair purposes, um, while these courts of concessions just sail on. And, yeah, that's uh, what, unquestioned. You know, un- unquestioned, absolutely yeah. unquestioned. And, and quite frankly, I mean, yes, um, Marie, the, the media response has been interesting, uh, uh, in some ways sort of, as you point out also, kind of irrelevant because no one will remember any of it. Um, uh, what's striking to me is, is you know, RoboDebt does get media attention, Um but, you know, and I don't want to join that chorus. It's always criticising the show that you appear on regularly, Mark, Um, uh, uh Insiders. But, you know, th- there was 40 minutes on this issue uh, on Insiders, roughly, I think, on the weekend. And Rabo Debt got five minutes. And the only aspect of it that got attention was... The imbecilic performance by Stuart Robert. Um, really, I mean, it wasn't a broader. Although, admittedly, the one of the journalists, the AFR journalist on the program, did actually make the connection between these two issues. But in fact, journalists should be doing this more often. They need well, to make I had, this. I had, yeah, made yeah, that yeah, in my yeah, piece on Sunday morning. Yeah, as well. it's it's becoming because um, it happened in the yeah, same twenty-four yeah, hours. Yeah, I couldn't avoid yeah, the contrast. Yeah, I mean, yeah,
1: here, yeah. here's here's this extraordinary sort of uh, you know kind of frenzy really mm. over over the the clipping of the ticket of these very well-to-do people mm. by mm. comparison to everyone else. Yeah, uh, and and then on the other hand, you've got this uh, you've got this. Example through the RoboDebt Royal mm. Commission of the previous government's insouciance mm. at a time of you know just just ripping well, people off of didn't it, it was illegal behaviour. It was illegal. It was unlawful. It was unethical.
0: It was basically the equivalent of what the mafia does. Like it was, it was a, a mafia shakedown. shakedown. It was like yeah. a mafia
2: shakedown, but its illegality is is now actually. I mean, it's a very important issue, but it's also actually obscuring a deeper reality and truth here that that it is also about the way in which power works in this country yeah. and the way in which political debate has been working in this country which basically you know protects people's franking credits and their superannuation tax concessions and their you know declining tax rates at the highest income tax levels and all the rest of it well, government for years was able to get away with doing this. Um, mm. that, that's about that's about power. It's about influence. It's about actually political discourse too. Yeah.
1: It is because it's about, as you say, it's about power. And one of the critical things about this robo debt scheme, unlawful as it was. Uh, with use, the use of this algorithm for income averaging, which made an est- just an estimate of what someone would owe and then treated it like they did owe it, was the reversal of the onus of proof. So the person levied with this debt had to prove that they didn't owe the government money. Now, a lot of these people weren't in a position to, be, mm. to you know, demonstrably prove that. Uh, and the stress was enormous. And we know it had... Um, Appalling uh, implications for a whole number of people, including some people who took their lives and and and, and other dramatic decisions in their lives.
0: Well, uh- there was also like the Royal Commission um, testimony from Friday was deeply disturbing. I mean, it was effectively revealed that um, the idea of an income averaging scheme went from a uh, you know glint in the minister's eye to a pilot within 2 days apparently you know like that that is that is a profound breakdown of the whole point of bureaucracy which is to be a bit slow and cumbersome to make sure public mon- money is spent legally for one and and not you know poorly and i mean we're actually sort of it's becoming apparent that there's sort of a pattern of of behavior that has emerged out of the the previous government where i mean this is not only the only kind of case i mean i think i believe the williams case which was around education funding like you know, all the sports Rorts affair, like they kind of what they sort of show is the federal government was essentially spending money in ways that it's actually legally not allowed to under the mm. constitution because it's supposed to fund money through the through section ninety six to the states, or you know, it's um, in essence not supposed to get involved in building toilets um, at, at local government levels, or, or you know, or, or whatever. And and it, it is actually linked to the extremely disturbing stuff that Stuart Robert was saying. He was basically saying, in a nutshell, that he he said that oh, the reason why I argued in favour of Robert Debt so strongly in the media was because of cabinet solidarity, right? And and he said that, you know, this doctrine of the Westminster system, which he (laughs) described as, well, cabinet makes a decision and therefore we all go out and defend it, right? But nowhere in the Westminster system does it say that it's okay to – um, defend an illegal program, right? Yeah. Um, especially if you have reservations about it. You know, the, the idea of cabinet solidarity is simply that the, the cabinet is a, 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 allows for a secret debate so a frank discussion can be had. Right at the top levels of government as a way of managing internal conflict, and then the cabinet having made a decision is kind of bound by it. And if you can't abide by that decision, then you should quit. Okay. And so, if Stuart Robert was concerned about the legality of a program he was administering, perhaps he should have quit no as a matter of conscience yeah. Yeah. because, you know. Um, mm the 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 actual legality of this is in question and that's like extraordinary on top of what we already had which was a prime minister who gave himself five ministries some of which he did secretly yeah. you know this is I mean, seriously what, what, disturbing stuff what does it
1: say about their l- their understanding of liberalism as well and the notion of the government having a responsibility to its citizens the rights of those citizens was was absolutely were were obliterated they were required to prove to their government that they owed it money. That they didn't owe it, money. Sorry, I mean it wasn't. It was an outrageous uh, reversal of the onus. Of well,
0: profit. you know, effectively the logic is they gave up those rights once they became dependent on the yes. state through yes. welfare. Which comes
1: back to the issue of power.
2: I mean, yeah. it, yep. it's something you can do to people without power, without yeah. wealth. That's you right. You don't do it to superannuants yeah. rich with, with six million dollar balances. Um, yeah, or yeah. to yeah. ministers
0: yeah. who who mm. can't follow their own rules or code yeah. of conduct or their own laws. Mm. One one rule for powerful people and one rule for poor people. Yes.
1: Let's take a break and be back in just a moment. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
0: Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
1: Welcome back. You're with Democracy Sausage, which, of course, you already know, comes from the Australian National University each week. And I'm with Maria Taflaga and Frank Bongiorno. Uh, and we're discussing really some developments in politics and I suppose what it tells us about politics and what it might teach us about if we look at history, where the government might go from here. I mean, everyone agrees there's a need for reform, or at least they say they agree to it, whether they agree to that reform or not is another matter. I was interested, Maria, in your point about the the sort of the discourse that, the reductive discourse that happens in the practice of politics, which sort of circumscribes what ministers, what governments can do. And the the sort of critical, the, the high point of all of this is election campaigns where people... Running for office get required to rule in and out all of these different things to sort of give definitive answers to complex policy questions that they have not yet properly addressed in in the in the sense of being ministers and having departments and understanding all of the implications and measuring them in in terms of priorities against other things. And yet in that sort of cartoonic six week period where everything is reduced to slogans and 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 sort of short sharp statements of commitment or otherwise, that's when governments find themselves kind of um, being defined, having their their parameters, their authority, uh, you know, dramatically narrowed really. And so we get to a situation where on the superannuation thing, just using it as an example, uh, it's easy for the opposition to say, this is a broken promise. You said you wouldn't touch super, now you've touched super ipso facto broken promise.
0: Yes, I think this is, as I sort of said, it's a, it's a, it's a long running process that's been many decades in the making, and it, you know, part of it is around like narratives, we, and we always have narratives when we are developing any kind of policy and that that actually is irrespective of time and place you know there's always narratives that are developed and and they they compete right you know so the opposition is trying to build this narrative around a, a broken pol- promise like the previous opposition built a narrative around failure to take responsibility mm-hmm. and so even though no one will really remember the super changes at the end because it affects so few people it's just that idea of of breaking a promise and some of it i think is perhaps the zeitgeist like you know we live in a world of frenetic change and uncertainty and so perhaps people kind of lean into the idea of of locking in a promise or so many promises these days about what governments won't do. Um, and then there's all the scrutiny, right? Like there's footage of everyone saying everything ever that can be repeated yes. and, and replayed at them. And and we can kind of see in the sort of way that scandals are breaking around what politicians said when they were very young, that they're becoming less and less potent. And I think it's society's recognition that this level of scrutiny and the ability to sort of pull back things from 15 years ago or replay tapes is not really constructive to society actually developing and moving on, people growing and, and changing, right? Which is the same writ large for a government sort of policy position. Mm, mm. And then the, the the big one is what politicians have created for themselves, which is their trust deficit, and it's because they treat politics like a game and they have done that successively now for a good 25 years. And this is the bed they made for themselves and it's it's a really difficult bed to get out of and one that, um, look, one of two things are going to happen. Either they will work out how to convince people that, We actually have to change society or we won't change anything and we'll get hit hard by something and it may never be good again. Mm -hmm. Like it's as simple as that. it Change or die. Well, COVID
2: gave us, I think, you know, it gave us a really deep insight into the dangers that that our forms of politics, our practice of politics have exposed the things you're talking about, Maria. I mean, um, there was some very good decision-making, I think, by both federal and state government. Uh, for probably about, I don't know, a year. And then during 2021, we got the frailties of, of both bureaucracy and government in this country full on. Um, they failed. Th- those good
1: decisions, incidentally, that you mm. talk about, it's interesting just to think about mm. that for a moment. They were very policy driven. They were they were mm-hmm. they were driven by yep. experts. Yep. Experts who had largely yeah. been shifted out of politics, yep. you know, moved to the back rooms or to the side mm-hmm. to the side of the stage yep. as politics, you know, p- politicians took charge. But suddenly they were clueless in in the onset of this kind of novel. You know, They called it mm-hmm. the novel yeah, it turns coronavirus. Out a press
0: release is not going to really help yeah. you with COVID. <laughs> and and they were
2: terrified. I mean, that's not the, you know the politicians were terrified that for the, many of them were for the first time in their lives, not just their political careers, facing something serious. I mm. mean. They were terrified. I mean, these are exactly. people. These are people who, in their daily political lives, have been dealing with crap. I mean, dealing with stuff that didn't matter for the most part, and suddenly they were dealing with stuff that really, really mattered. They saw those bodies piling up, and and yes, their decision making was evidence driven, careful, um, bold. Um, and this isn't meant to be some sort of you know um, pain to um, Morrison. I mean, it was the political class generally that succeeded during that period. Then we got to 2021, and they they reverted to type. And mm. then we started getting vaccination programs arranged around the next election, and all the rest of it. And mm-hmm. and we ended up where we ended up. Um. So I think you know, in in that that roughly two year period, you get encapsulated. Um. What what has happened to our politics and the dangers of of of, you know, failing to reform. I mean, that was a great opportunity to produce better government as 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 a continuing phenomenon. Instead. We got some of the worst government we've probably ever had in this country uh, during the second half of the Morrison era. Some of the worst things ever. But what it, um, what it mm, does mm. show
0: is the resilience and the flexibility of our institutional arrangements. Right, that potential is there, and and so like on one level, the fact that there are more voices now in in politics, like I, you know, I think this is actually like a good structural way of forcing conversations because. It's not easy for the government and the opposition and the media and everyone else to reduce everything down to zero sum. Well, if the opposition says no, then it can't happen. Or if the government says, you know, because there are these different actors, nothing can really get done without coordination. Mm. And that means conversation. That means nuance. That means trade-offs. That means just a greater deal of complexity. But it's a big norm shift. I mean, it took the political class, the political system, a good 30 years to get used to the idea that the Senate would stop stuff, change stuff or demand stuff. And we're only about 10 years in or maybe, yeah, maybe 10 or 15 years in to that process about – about the lower house and about politics more generally.
1: And, it, and it's been voter-driven. I mean, that's yeah. that's voters basically saying we're not happy with that, that sort of binary, simplistic politics. We actually want something different. And that's what they actually did. And it was Liberal voters as well as Labor voters, Greens voters or whatever, putting different candidates up, you know, backing them uh, in safe Liberal seats, for example. So we have this sudden mm. influx of teals of into, the, into the Parliament and – it, as you say, it really sort of changes things because it's people actually saying, you know, politics is actually, or governing, more importantly, is actually a business of, uh, you know, um, catering to and uh, accommodating interests, finding solutions to complex problems that are overall beneficial, and where that, where sometimes there are losers, where sometimes people have to take a take a haircut.
2: And to be fair, look, my sense of this still new government, um, federal government, is that that's the direction it's heading in. I think they do see policy as as a more negotiated process. Um, I think. Um, you know there is a strain of enormous arrogance within the Labor Party generally, and I'm thinking here, you know, also rank and file, not just leadership, towards the Greens. And for the most part, they've put that on hold. Actually, they realise that it, it's counterproductive. Um, they've got a the fact they can't govern without the Greens. That's their reality. I mean, they basically need their numbers in the the upper house and may in due course need their their numbers in the lower house too. So it has been, I think, a more sensible approach to the kinds of issues you're raising, Maria. And they're also fundamentally more democratic. They're willing to, to foster debate in the community that isn't controlled by the government's agenda. Now, that has its dangers, but it's also fundamental to a democracy. And I mean, one area I've been engaged with a little bit lately in, one of my capacities is, is cultural policy. And what was very interesting or what is interesting about the way that's been done, I mean they, they did their consultations and all the rest of it, but they yeah you know, the, the, the Minister Tony Burke appointed a committee that had people like Janet Holmes at court, Claire Wright and various others on it um, you know to advise the government on cultural policy. It came up with stuff that does not at the moment represent government policy. But they publicised it. They released it. You can read it. You can see the differences between what this committee advised and what is actually in the government's cultural policy statement. That is democracy, a a, a very good practice, I think, of democracy, something that the last government just couldn't even comprehend, let alone practice.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, debate is essentially, you know, water, like to to an ecosystem. Mm. And we've sort of, we've had like 20, 25 years of governments being really afraid of debate. You know the whole system kind of drying out, becoming really brittle, and so I'm not surprised we've actually seen really poor decision making because there's just not enough contestation coming into the system, yeah. which is supposed to sort of weed out bad ideas. That's the sort of the whole problem. It's
1: almost like voters saying, "We want our democracy back. We want yeah. our, our we want but, to have influence but, but on our be, governments." Let's
0: be clear, right? I mean, this is a reassertion by like the middle to upper middle classes who were kind of dealt out of, of conversations for a very long time since the rise of the sort of elites discourse, which happened in the mid-90s. And, you know, essentially this group of very um, well-organised voters with a lot of social capital have out-organised these sort of big dinosaurs, these big parties mm. that have relationships with with um, you know media groups that broadcast their message and it's not just because they're well organized There's like lots of things have happened in society to break down this kind of monopolistic duopolistic yeah. kind of um, mm. structure like and we're just we're just all of these things work on cycles like we're just returning to you know a politics of a bygone era it's in, but instead of it all being about knocking on doors and coordinating and soap boxes around street corners it's it happens online and then that online activity goes into the public and that's and that's that's our system working that's our system mm. innovating and and renewing so there's talk- a
2: lot of knocking on doors though i mean it does have Absolutely. some some of the practice of it is actually you know um recognizably old in a way exactly. um if you're talking about the community independence for instance exactly. um it is often quite you know it's grassroots stuff that that yeah, you know, resembles the foundation of earlier political parties, Labor, Liberal and Country Party, yeah. um, which is quite interesting, I think, yeah, in its the, own right. The that's the cy- cyclical of, yeah, aspect of it, exactly. I think. Exactly. Yeah. And the role of,
0: yeah. you know, like for a better word, matriarchs, right? Yeah, women are very um, prominent in, yeah. Yeah, like in they're women's organisations. That's right. Yeah. They're very prominent in the early days. They're very prominent in the mm. teal movement, especially, you know, grandmas. Mm. Like, yeah. Yeah.
2: But how much of this also, are the spaces opening also because of the decline or declining influence of legacy media. Um you know, I mean, the Murdoch media has been humiliated at recent elections. Um, it, I mean, it, it really, in a lot of ways, didn't so much campaign against Albanese at the last election, it campaigned against Teals. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the, know, the reaction
1: uh, uh, of media to, the, yeah. to those people who had the yeah. temerity to actually stand for yeah. election mm. <laughs> as if this was some sort of, mm. you know, undemocratic thing to do it was astonishing. Well, was it is very and, 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 we, <laughs> and we see it again, and we've been talking about it here already, but we see it again with the kind of media reaction to the uh, superannuation changes. And including stories about, well, this is an index. So uh, some modelling shows that, you know, 45 years from now, it won't have 80,000 people affected. It will have half a million, you know. Uh, 45, 13 federal elections from now. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know what? Fraser
0: forgot to index tax on income taxes like, what, 45 years ago, and we haven't had a single tax cut in that time. It's it's a disgrace. (laughs) The political system won't be able to respond. Well, I
1: just just thought it was interesting that um, those sort of stories were being run because they really Mm. just showed the links to which people were going to find a kind of- To turn their brains off. Or to find a negative side to this story, which was really quite consistent with the idea of- of public policy having a, a public purpose and of the idea of budgets being something that you need to have control over, that you need to balance. I mean, the Conservatives are always talking about the need for fiscal balance, and as soon as a very cautious idea is floated that actually does that, we, we see this reaction. Um, and, you know, it's astonishing just the the, the, the I suppose, the disconnect, which is what you've both been saying, really, but the disconnect between those old politics and those old media and what the electorate is starting to say. Because throughout all of that, we then see these polls come out and they show that sixty four percent of Australians think the superchangers are a good idea. The media's the negative media's had all effect.
0: Which is an extraordinary level of support, right? It For is. a measure. Mm. That's Yeah, yeah, for a measure that's actually taking. Yeah, 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 precisely.
1: Mm. So look, let's just in the time we've got left, which is not long, but let's just turn our minds to Frank. What the, you know, what more the government can do around this? Just perhaps using a bit of a historical example, Uh, the the one that's often talked about. I mean, people always mention the Hawke Keating era as the golden reform era era, and so forth. How did how did government then? in the 80s. Uh, you know, Maria talked about you know a couple of recessions and politics being extremely divisive mm. in 75 and, and after that, and all of those things came together. And then Labor comes to power in 83 with bringing Australians together as the slogan, Bob Hawke's slogan. Mm. And then they actually do do a whole bunch of stuff. Now, a lot of it has been described as low-hanging fruit or things you can't do twice, right? Like floating the dollar or whatever. But uh, nonetheless, they built the constituency. Is there any uh, any scope for that kind of root and branch looking at policy now, particularly, say, in the economic area?
2: Oh, I, I mean, I, I, the argument I put about this is that the Hawke government has not a great deal to tell us about the content of policy, because it, it was a response, as Maria said earlier, actually, to the specific circumstances, of the late 70s, early 80s. Um, so I, I'm not sure about um, no, but I mean, in terms yeah. of the mechanism. Oh, the mechanism—that's that, yeah. where it, it has a lot to tell us. Mm. Um, a, a, you know, about how you do things, mm. about the relationship between what you say you'll do it during an election campaign and what you do afterwards. Mm. Now, sometimes Hawke was—I mean, if you think Ab- Abbott was brazen mm. in in two thousand thirteen, I mean, Hawke was abandoning the Labor's election commitments. By Sunday, the Sunday after the election, Um, uh, certainly by Monday, it was basically all over. He's basically, he's telling, he's telling, you know, potential economic advisors that, you know, they're not going to be doing any of the stuff that we said during the, (laughs) I mean, he was completely brazen about it. And it was all about um, the the, the sense of both economic decay and, uh, you know, the, the recession of, of 1982, 83, both, both of those things. This
1: was because he'd read the Red Book, you know, the, the the incoming government book and...
2: But they knew, they knew that there was a big deficit there and, and but yeah, they sort of assembled over here in Canberra in the old uh, lakeside, what is it now, QT and... John Stone had been up all night and they, they had a chat on Sunday. It was quite clear where they were heading. It was basically to abandon the, the moderate Keynesianism that he he'd essentially outlined in, in his Opera House policy speech in February and, and to go down the path that they went down, partly because the argument went, Fraser's already pumping up the economy. you know. So mm. you couldn't say that during election no, no. You know, Malcolm Fraser's already basically done what we want to do. I mean, obviously, they, they couldn't do that. So- you know, it, um, they were often brazen about about using the, the circumstances. But, but, that but how did them. they get yeah. the? What
1: I'm, I guess, what I'm getting yeah. at is they got that <clears throat> public yeah. leverage yeah. through things like the tax summit for example. Well,
2: that's right, and, and that's how they did tax reform. I mean, they go to the 1984 election with the commitment to the summit and they kind of led a debate run mm. around various options, as you remember. I mean, can't probably remember option what's C. in them. A, B, C. Everyone remembers option C. They remember it? option C because so it didn't get up. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah but so Paul Keating had, backed yeah, it, you see. Yeah, And so it had a, uh, uh, that was a goods and services tax. So it had, it had, consumption a, it had tax. a consumption tax. It had a consumption tax in it, that's right. Um so, uh, they let a debate run um, and uh, they uh, uh, essentially advocated not so much the introduction of new taxes, such as a fringe benefits tax or a capital gains tax, which had been a touchy issue. Um, mm. If you remember, I mean, it, it had been a problem for Labour at say, the 1980 election, hadn't it? Um, what they did was oh, we're going to close. Uh, tax loopholes on tax cheats bottom of the harbor scheme mm. so it was it was represented in terms of closing off opportunities to exploit the system mm. and you know we're going to consult the australian public through our summit about the best way to do this I mean, that was a clever framing because it, it left their options open. It gave Hawke the opportunity to abandon option C mm. when it became clear that neither business or the unions were going to have a consumption tax and it could lose them in the next election. But it still allowed them to, to go down the path of a, of a capital gains tax and, and a fringe benefits tax. And you sold these in terms of the kinds of exploitation of the system that it closed off, the long lunch. The windfall mm. and, and so on, and, and it was it was you know sometimes clumsy but generally successful political management.
1: Yeah, sometimes messy. Messy is the word Absolutely. I would say. Absolutely, yeah.
0: I mean, part of it was also, like, you know, the the opposition was in total disarray for a lot of mm. that time. They also agreed with a lot of this they stuff. They didn't agree, agree with, with that, though. That's a kind of great myth, that they agreed with it. They didn't agree with the gold tax and they didn't yeah. agree with the, I mean, actually, on, yeah. on most tax stuff, they weren't Man. very supportive. Like, remember the... Um, you know, there was some changing to the assets test for the aged, like that. The 1984 mm. campaign was built on that. Yeah, so. that was
2: an issue at the 84 exactly. campaign. Exactly, they, they didn't support this stuff. They supported, they they did support the floating of the dollar. That's right. They yeah. they
0: supported those sort of big macro kind of changes, but mm. i you know, I think they opposed the gold tax. You know, like yeah. Mm.
1: Well, it's interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll see how all of these debates play out because. Um, we saw a real glimpse of how febrile the system still is when in the in the sort of hours days and hours after the announcement of this change to superannuation treasurer jim chalmers was asked about whether the family home could become subject to um uh, to tax capital gains tax concession or reduction and being a policy guy and being a treasurer who wants to keep things open he refused to be absolutely definitive on it. I think it was on that channel nine programme you mm. mentioned.
2: Oh, no, it was the other one. It was Koshy. That's seven. Isn't oh, it? Sunrise. Right. Right. Sunrise, the one with the cash cow. Right, I'm yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: That's right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know what he should have said, Mark? I mean, they do need to get their lines straight. He should have said, Koshy, no, we're not going to touch the, the family home. We're not going to nationalise the banks and we're not going to buy back Qantas. And uh, he, should, he, he could easily have deflected a that. Bit of,
0: a bit of he could sarcasm e- would have and, gone on. And that would have though, worked yeah. in
2: that particular light-hearted breakfast television context. But instead, it was allowed to run. Well, yeah. yes, and
1: and... and- Koshi uh, stuck with it um, and yeah. uh, and and the more he stuck with it and the more uh, Chalmers didn't sort of give him what he wanted or what he was asking for, um you know, the more it was allowed around, of course, then media takes it up that, you know, the government hasn't ruled it out. We get into that whole mm-hmm. sort of negative uh, vacuum space where where things that haven't happened are the news. That's uh, right. that will then... be
2: after your Frankie
0: well, it's, it's, it's I mean, <laughs> that, I mean, That's right. I mean, yeah, it's a lot easier to report on, like, speculation than actually yeah. reading a document, passing the document, asking people whether or not this makes any sense. You know, it's... Yeah,
1: and it's, then oh. Albanese the next morning, I think, by the next morning on, on PK's program on Radio National... Um, Rules it out, right? Says no, we're not going to do it because it's a bad idea and Australians don't want it. Uh, which is not really a particularly deep sort of policy no. justification <laughs> for not doing it, but it was. It had the defence of it's being a shibboleth. Def-
0: it's staying a shibboleth. That's basically <laughs> That's what he it said. Was, it's <laughs> definitively yeah. a, a shibboleth. We yeah. defend.
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, That's so home
2: is his castle. He should have yeah. said. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, but it will be
1: <laughs> interesting. Look, we're going to have to bring this to a to draw this to a close. But it will just Aww. in in, in, in conclusion say uh, it will be interesting to see how. Um, you know, how all of these things play out, really, because the mechanism that the government has used here of proposing a change that will come in after the next election does give it at least the potential to propose other changes, as long as they're well argued, that it can survive an election on. Um, and uh, mm. uh, whether it's got the the policy courage to do that, it's certainly got the policy Basis to do it. There's an urgency for change, uh, but whether it uh, it depends on how much baggage it wants to try and lug over the over the threshold at the next election, or whether it wants to give the opposition a bit of a leg up, and um, that'll be the debate that no doubt Labor's having. Thanks so much for uh, a good chat. Really enjoyed it. Right, likewise. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Maria. Absolutely. That's Democracy Sausage for this week from the Australian National University. Uh, We'll look forward to talking to you again same time next week or whenever you actually get around to listening to it. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Bye.